Okay, I think we're ready to go. Thank you for joining us for today's webinar. Today's webinar is being presented by Klaus Block from the University of Tennessee. And uh, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to go over a few housekeeping topics. Today's webinar is being recorded. We will share a link with you after the event is over. And we welcome you to revisit that content yourself and share it with your colleagues. We also invite your comments and questions. Please look at the Q&A chat box there on your screen. If you think of a question for the speaker at any point, just type it in there and I'll pose it to him or hold it for discussion at the end. As I said, today's presenter is Klaus Blake. He's the Director of Reliability and Maintainability, the RMC Center at the University of Tennessee. He's also a research professor in the College of Engineering. And before that, he served as Manufacturing Engineering Director at Cadillac. Klaus is also a past chairman of SMRP. Uh, at this point, I'm gonna turn the floor over to you, Klaus, and you can start today's presentation. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So again, uh, glad to be with everybody. And then, uh, like I said, ask ask any questions you have. We'll I'll do the best I can to to answer those for you. Uh, what I'd like to do to today is um, in the time that we have is uh, you know, talk and uh, loosely transition from one topic to the other uh, in these four areas. Talk a bit about the evolution of asset management and reliability. You know, at, at a high level overview. You know, beginning with really. Uh, you know, reliability starting, but then quickly get into kind of, kind of what I see as observed operational challenges and opportunities uh, from all the industries that, that I'm working in. Actually, uh, this morning I'm calling, I'm, I'm working in, in a facility this week and, and actually doing this webinar from, from a plant. And then uh, thirdly, uh, uh, spend some time talking about uh, what the best companies do and then uh, kind of what I see coming up, transitioning to manufacturing uh, 4.0 and really all the digital uh, challenges and opportunities and that are going to happen with or without us, uh, you know, as, as we move forward and, and some of the issues around that and, and some of the things you need to get ready for, uh, for that digital challenge. And, you know, what, and then uh, what's today's climate around that and, and then uh, taking some action tied into that. So we're going to start with maybe just a, just a quick question, uh, kind of loosen things up. Um, when was the word reliability uh, first used? And I believe, uh, Eric, you're going to handle that. Yeah, yeah. So the poll question that Klaus posed, you can see it on the screen hopefully here, is when was the word reliability first used? And hopefully this quick poll has popped up for you, and you can select one of the responses here. We have 1816, 1927. 1948 and 1955. We'll just take about uh, 30 seconds or so for everybody to file in their All right, and we have some results here. Looks like 21% uh, of people said 1816, 45% said 1927, 
17% said 1948, and another 17% said 1955. So fairly evenly split between most of the results, except for 1927, which looks like our winner. What was the correct response there, Klaus? It's uh, 1816, and uh, I actually used this question because I didn't know either. You know, <laughs> I never looked up when did reliability start, or at least first get used, you know, and, and so on. So, uh, so it was actually... Uh, Used in uh, in 1816 uh, for the first time, uh, exact was actually by a poet, and and it referred mainly to a person being dependable and reliable. You know, and, you know that their actions were repeatable. And that was the first time it was ever used. But uh, as as we move forward uh, in time quickly, you know, in the 20s and 30s, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on at a smaller scale with different companies and. You know, there's going to be dozens I don't talk about, so it's not meant to be comprehensive, but just give a few samples. I know uh, things that I have read about, know about, you know, some of this was obviously before my time, too, was, you know, Bell Labs was doing stuff in the 20s and 30s on statistical quality control and engineering design. And, you know, again, uh, uh, we're, at that point, uh, you, know, you know, maintenance was still doing the fixes and engineers were, were doing the design. Uh, then uh, it was, you know, probably going to the 40s. Uh, in, in the 40s, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a lot of stuff was done around the military, you know, tied in a, a different application there. And they obviously, uh, during the World Wars, wanted to make sure that product worked and operated when needed. And, and a lot of it then was involved around electronic equipment and electronics working correctly. So a lot of the experimentation and discussion around reliability was, was focused around that. And again, you know, are, you know, is the repeatable instruments, is, is, is the testing, is it working right, and, and, and so on. And, and then, uh, you know, later on in around the uh, 60s, they started you know, hearing words like, like uh, reliability analysis and, and Weibel analysis, and, uh, and that was Wally Weibel, uh, you know, we got, uh, who actually, uh, you know, started all that, and, and uh, he was publishing in committees and, you know, and, Different societies like IEEE, ASME, uh, American Society of Quality Control, and and uh, and I and I, you know, I still rem uh, remember seeing a uh, you know really small book uh, or smaller book from uh, Dorian Chainin on on Weibel and so on. So so there were people that were doing that already, even though it wasn't as widespread. And then around I think it was around the 60s, Wally Weibel uh, um, went to Columbia University and he was doing consulting. I think first with the Air Force and then the military. And uh, and so so you know, more people were starting to get involved with it. Uh, Dr. Bob Abernathy, you know, uh, was involved in, in in following some of this stuff and really an early user of, of those kind of things. And and at that time they were also starting to get more into human reliability because again you can't be reliable you know even if you have a reliable process and a reliable product or trying to make a reliable product um, you need human reliability to make uh, all those things work together. And, and then there were you know various committees. Uh, uh, the IEC was the International Electrotechnical Committee. I can remember a lot of the uh, stuff, as I mentioned, started out uh, more electric, electrical, and, and then, uh, and then the, you know there was the Nolan and Heap study that everybody's more familiar with. Uh, that was the stuff. I think it started way back in the 60s and 70s, but a publication was actually uh, later. I think it was around 1978 uh, when that was that U.S. airline study that gave us those six curves that said, "Gee, most of the." Issues are really, really random failure, and, and the bathtub curve doesn't really work that well if that's how you're doing your maintenance. And, and that's kind of where most of the stuff uh, still sits today. 
and uh, you know, and but as a result of the Nolan heat stuff and different practices, you know, failure rates were getting better by a factor of you know, five, 10, 15, and so on. So, so that's all good. Um, yeah. uh, you know, then uh, um, John Mowbray, uh, you know, he partnered with uh, one of the persons from the Nolan and Heap study, and I don't remember which one at this point, but uh, between the, uh, their work and John's publishing, uh, you know, the RCM2 book came out, which is still used by a lot of people today. Um, uh, we did a, a small guidebook uh, you know, when I was working for General Motors. Um, and, and uh, originally it was a lot of the stuff that we did and, and a lot of other companies then got involved also for everything from uh, you know, Boeing, John Deere, Ford and so on. And it was published through SAE, it was document M-110 and through the National Center of Manufacturing Sciences because our feeling was that if we don't get the information out to the original equipment manufacturers, it is, you know, we, we can't change that much after the fact, especially for design and uh, maintainability. So we just wanted to get a workbook out there at, at no charge to us, and you know, let that other people publish it and, and uh, take take the revenue from that. So, so that's how that got started. And I think that's been through a couple of revisions now, of course, with a lot of other people being involved. And then some of the stuff on like the uh, uh, SEJ 1011, which defines what makes it a reliability-centered maintenance, which really describes the the items in, in a uh, failure modes and effectiveness. Uh, uh, analysis sheet and then some other uh, asset management processes around that as to what you have to do to to make it a, a reliability-centered maintenance effort. And, and uh, the word started getting used more on reliability and, and, and dependability by the different societies, and, and I think you know it's pretty close to, to how we use it today, uh, which addresses more of the business needs of reliability versus just looking at at some of the components and the electrical stuff uh, as, as it started out. And then really from there, it really expanded to uh, to getting it uh, to a whoops, the wrong way here, to get it to the floor applications. And so, you know, now it's being used in industry in a lot of different ways. And, 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 and there's some people making a fair amount of progress. And then, then uh, and then the bottom is, is uh, kind of the words that you see in, in the uh, John Mowbray book from starting out from the fix when it's broke to, you know, some computer usage to a lot of the stuff that we're using doing today from uh, you know, more analytics and the PM optimization and et cetera. But the big change now is, is uh, you know, where do we go from here? You know, from really, really five, 10 years ago and 2000, 2021 going forward, we're seeing this phenomenal digital transformation. And a lot of people are still looking at, you know, how fast do I go? How fast can I afford to go? And am I ready? And it's a lot more systems thinking and a lot more data than you're used to handling and just, taking care of all the data is, is a big task in itself. And uh, kind of transitioning that to opportunities and challenges uh, that I see in, in different companies is uh, uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to uh, whether it's the last 50 or 200 facilities that I've been in, in the uh, 10 plus years that I've been at the university or the hundreds of more plants that I've been in my, my corporate benchmarking career and so on, I still see almost the same operating challenges and opportunities. You know, people are getting uh, pressured to do more with less to reduce costs per unit, uh, to, you know, to decrease to decrease downtime. That hasn't changed, uh, you know, since forever. Uh, and then also, you know, people are looking for more return on investment to satisfy their investors and stockholders if it's a publicly held company. That again, that hasn't changed. And even still, after all these years, we're still working on life cycle decisions on assets. You know, how, how do we get purchasing involved? 
to spend a little bit more money up front to design in those 30 plus modules, as I call it, to get better design and maintainability, that's going to greatly reduce the oper the uh, uh, keeping the assets operational and really really the maintaining costs once you buy those assets. Because as we know, and you see the charts that say if you don't do the design and for maintainability, now you've already decided how you're going to spend 95% of your money over the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years. I, I pulled uh, this chart out and. Uh, um, I just happened to see it as, as I was putting the presentation together uh, from McKinsey. It kind of shows because uh, everybody's struggling with uh, you know, um, you know with, with employees, and number of employees, and, and a lot of the experienced employees retiring, and, and the younger employees coming in with good skills but not the experience. And, and and this is a chart that shows what's more important to employees and what's more important to employees. And, and the one that's uh, interesting. Uh, that, that's really impacting a lot of places right now uh, is the flexible work schedule. I put a yellow dot there to see where that kind of fits. But what that means is that um, uh, uh, that the employer, excuse me, the employees uh, uh, see this as more important than the employees. And so meaning that that people want more flexible work schedules. And I think you know this whole year and a half and, and with COVID has really driven that home that over 20% of the people in the U.S. have already switched jobs. It's slowing down just a little bit right now, but I, I think it's going to be closer to 40% uh, people changing jobs over the next uh, two or plus years. And, and that's going to, it's that's traumatic, you know, for, for people trying to do things and, and everybody running shorthanded. It's, it's a big issue everywhere. But but that, uh, you know, that, that flexibility is what everybody wants. Um, other uh, uh, availability, loss of skills, again, it's the aging workforce. Um, when they when they leave, while well, things are getting more efficient, you're getting more skills. But what you're missing is that black book that the trades and, and uh, have that says, "Here's how I really run run the plant. Here's the day-to-day -day operations uh, that, that that I tweak to make sure we run as effectively as possible." And that's all based on experience, and and, and that's what the tough part is when when those people leave. Uh, by 2025, 75 percent of your workforce will be millennials, and so it's a Big transition of uh, how do you get there and how do you uh, train those people? And when I say not train them so much on the technical, but on the experience and the assets and the manufacturing specific stuff. When you look at what's coming up, I mean, there's roles that we haven't even heard of today. I mean, I mean obviously, uh, you, you, you know, you're already seeing things like augmented reality engineer. Well, that, that may be a common role in a manufacturing, you know, maintenance side at some point, or a technology integration engineer, you know, reliability maintainability engineer. We, we've had that for a while, but beyond that, you know, you may be hiring a data analytics engineer uh, as you go forward. If you're going to be doing algorithms and machine intelligence or machine learning and artificial intelligence, all huge items, uh, you know virtual reality engineer, algorithm engineer, human technology, machine integration engineer, you know, autonomous transportation engineer. You know, they're talking about flying taxis, taxis not being that many years away. Uh, Volkswagen's experimenting or, or, you know, has actually piloted a, a small flying vehicle, you know. So, so things are going to be changing rapidly, you know. A sensor integration engineer, manufacturing industry 4.0 integration engineer. Not just three, but 4D printing, Additive manufacturing engineer, 
Uh, we, we do a lot of that stuff at UT. Uh, Michigan State's actually the lead for automotive, for additive manufacturing. University of Tennessee in Knoxville is the lead uh, for aerospace. And so there's a lot of stuff done uh, around this. Uh, what 4D, 4D printing is, because people ask that, there's a fourth dimension like temperature or pressure. That means you can do 3D printing. Let's say place something into a piece of equipment or a person getting surgery. And now based on rising temperature, that part grows to a predetermined size and shape. And, and so, so that's a phenomenal advantage now if you need to get stuff in small spaces, both for, for medical reasons and, and for manufacturing. And that's 4D printing. Uh, a lot of the, uh, I, there, there's manufacturers now of spare parts for old vehicles that are doing uh, uh, additive manufacturing printing and they're printing the uh, spare parts of old vehicles rather than keeping a large warehouse. So, so that's starting to happen already. Um, you know, cloud edge computing, uh, I keynoted part of the OSI soft conference in San Francisco probably about three years ago now. And there was a big talk on everything going to the edge. I don't think it's going to be as much as it was touted, but you know, there's going to be a lot more edge computing but probably still the majority, uh, you, know, you know, going to go into the cloud and quantum computing is a whole other ball game. Maybe we'll talk a little about that at the, on the last uh, couple of slides. I still think there's an insufficient understanding and, and especially compliance um, on the key performance indicators and how they align and understanding of what really matters. Um, most medium large companies have 100, some, some 200 uh, yeah, or something in between there. Uh, key process in indicators or metrics, but you're lucky if you can improve two, three, four items at one time and really focus on those levers that really can impact everything. So you need to understand, you know, what, what are those important items and, and what do you work on? And so uh, I still see a lot of places that, that have a lack of reliability and maintainability roadmaps linked to corporate strategies where they can really make a difference. Uh, you know, so again, and understanding what are the levers, what are those few things you work on that can give you the greatest return on investment and take away those daily pain points. Uh, and understanding the formal process and then the hidden costs. You know, I still see 90, 95% effort on performance and very little on organizational health. That's the engagement, the people side of the business. And those that get that and spend much more time on that, they see the financial results, you know, based on studies that I've seen. Um, so again, are, are your KPIs aligned properly to line of sight from top of the organization to the plant floor? You know, most places have some level of business plan deployment of the goals, the high level goals of the company to metrics or KPIs in the plant floor. But are those KPIs clear enough when the people on the floor and the engineers that have to make a difference look at them, do they really understand what can and should I do different the impact and prove those KPIs. Is it that clear? If not, you don't have the proper line of sight. Uh, with that, let's roll into another another uh, question uh, on uh, reactive uh, reactive maintenance. Uh, Eric. Yes, we have. What percentage of your maintenance hours are reactive? The options here, hopefully everyone's seeing, are less than 10, 10 to 25, 25 to 50 percent, and over 50%. Klaus, is there uh, one answer here that you usually see people uh, responding yeah, with? I'll, Not to I'll bias our to audience that. here, but. Yep, I'll speak to that as soon as the answer. Yeah. 
All right. It looks like our winner by a hair is 25 to 50% here. Okay. Yeah. Um, the question is, is where should you be? Uh, I published a long time ago and I haven't seen any reasons to change it because I do continuous some benchmarking and update it every three years. As I say, best practice should be 10% reactive maintenance plus or minus 5% based on your industry and how you choose to run the business because it's always a business decision. So I say 10%. Uh, right now in North America from thousands of inputs, you know, not just a few, from different kinds of facilities, the average percent reactive maintenance in North America is for top quartile, top 25% is 9%, is 9%. So, so they get it there, they're at that 10%. And, and I poke at reactive maintenance because to me, it's you know one of the first things you need to get better at and improve so many things. You know, if you're highly reactive, you never have enough spare parts. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do, you know, tied into your MRO crib. And, you know, just having that high level of reactive uh, maintenance, you know, if you do that, backlog will increase since you're using limited resources that should be doing other things. You know, if you're fixing stuff too often, you're just reintroducing some form of infant mortality in a lot of places in your equipment. Uh, you know, increased reactive maintenance uh, impacts your safety. You know, running to failure, you know, praising firefighters is, is, is never going to get you there. You know, so I can go on with 50 items. You know, uh, most of us know that emergency repairs cost, I've seen from three to 10 times more than planned maintenance. And, you know, and uh, when I look at my benchmarking data, if, if you're in bottom quartile in reactive maintenance versus top quartile, just in maintenance costs, it costs you six times more to run the business of maintenance. That's not what you lose in production costs. So, you know, we can go on and on, but you just got to get better at reactive maintenance. So I'll move on to the next slide. Uh, so again, uh, from my data, over half of the facilities and factories in North America still rely too much on reactive maintenance as a major part of their daily uh, maintenance activity. If you look at um, you know kind of what's going on, it's it's easy to ignore you know, kind of those little things because they never seem that important. It's kind of like you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. You know, I see it, but I don't really speak up or I don't try to fix it because it's been going on for, going on for so long. But uh, the issue is, is individually, one or two little things may not be that big of a deal, but it's usually not one or two little things that are done incorrectly in a plant. It's, it's dozens of things every day. And cumulatively, that just destroys your process. And you can never get better if you don't fix those informal things that are happening or those things that are ignored. And by those kind of things, just a few examples, I mean like taking verbal job requests that should be formal work orders. Where you get to the job site and operations doesn't let you take the equipment because they want to run just a little bit longer. You know, or you get unclear maintenance tasking direction, you know, so they improvise, they, they, they do something. Or, or uh, you know, do people prioritize a lot of their work as safety just so they can get to higher on the list because your backlog's low, so high. And, and uh, or they struggle to find the correct part because all the parts are not coded with standardized systems, you know, a problem that also impacts reordering, et cetera. You know, and, and that, or learn that some of the asset history is only being captured because a lot of the work orders aren't being closed out. And, and obviously most people have, you know, you know skilled trades hoarding parts because they don't trust the stock rooms. And, and we can go on and on, you know, or you don't do the root cause analysis because you don't have time because you're doing so much reactive maintenance. So 
you know, in, individually, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But when cumulatively putting all those things together, those many little things going wrong, you know, you know, ignoring so many things that individually don't seem that big, make your RM process dysfunctional. You know, and how do you get better unless you fix that first? And and what I see, you know, in a lot of places is people not being held accountable for following the plant processes. You know, when I go into a plan, I usually ask three questions. You know, do you have a standardized work process? Do you have, in, you have individual small team continuous improvement? Because if you're not finding and fixing, how do you get better? You're just doing what I call maintenance insanity. Like Einstein said, if you do the same thing over and over again and ex expect better results, that's insanity. Well, if we don't do the finding and fixing, and then checking that it actually worked. If you look at it at a big enough window of time, you're just doing maintenance insanity. You're fixing the same stuff over and over again. And you have a methodology to improve and sustain the thinking process to one of ongoing improvement. Meaning, are you really doing coaching so you're developing a plan of problem solvers? Kaizen events are good, but Kaizen events are, are, are not co just coaching. So uh, with that, let me jump into uh, uh, the third polling question, Eric. So the question is, how much of a roadblock is cultural change? Is it a minimal issue for you? Is it a moderate issue? Is it a significant issue? Or is it the largest issue? And it looks like most people are saying it's a significant issue, and a lot of people are also saying it's a moderate issue for them. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. So those that are doing better with culture, so so uh, congratulations, that's good. Um, you know, what I see is uh, uh, from hundreds of companies, over 70% of the companies still point to culture as the main roadblock to reliability and maintainability improvement. But the same could be said for you know, implementing lean manufacturing. You know total productive maintenance, you know, you know, individual things like root cause analysis, and then we can go on and on. And, uh, and the difficulty in, in changing from reactive to proactive mindset, you know, that's it's, it's just tough. You know, if you've done something, let's say not the best way, I won't even say the incorrect way, but not the best way for many, many years, for you, that's the best way of doing it. And that's the plant, the plant floor is going to fight that. So we've always done it this way. And, and how do you change that? So you've got that historical dysfunctional process ingrained in the culture that just doesn't want people to, to go forward with a change. I also see that many organizations think they're better than they are you know, until they really understand the benchmarks and what could be done and what, what the real, you know, once you monetize what the real opportunities are, they realize that there's still a long ways to go. And I, and I think, you know, and so people also need a better understanding of how it's all related and how it really impacts everything in operational excellence. I think that's not fully understood. So it, there's not a lack of support from sometimes other functions. And a lot of places are still silo-oriented within their organization. And so a big part of it, again, is, is the culture. And I'll, I'll put up a couple slides on that. 
Uh, this was some stuff from the uh, Jim Collins Good to Great book. We had some opportunity to do stuff uh, with that when I was uh, 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 doing benchmarking in Europe and, and looking at some of that stuff with the teams, with these teams. And uh, one of the quotes he put in his book is, it says that all companies have a culture. Some companies have discipline, but few companies have the culture of discipline. And that's what you really need. You know, that's what we're talking about, standard work, people being accountable, people being, people being held accountable. How much easier is, is your job at your place, whether it's office or work, if everybody does what they're supposed to do, you don't have to worry about how good did they do it. And when you have disciplined people, you don't need hierarchy or as much of it. When you have disciplined thought, you don't need bureaucracy. And when you have disciplined action, you don't need excessive controls. And with that culture of discipline, where people know what to do or are capable of it, willing to do it, that's when you really get that great performance. And when, when I uh, when I did, uh, uh, like I said, I do ongoing benchmarking, but a little over 10 years ago, the big result from one of the surveys was that, uh, again, if we don't get better at culture, especially at the plant floor level, continuous improvement maintenance is gonna come to a screeching halt. We'll kind of get, get a point of diminishing returns. And I'm seeing that with data now. You know, since it was like back in, gosh, 1991, when I was doing some of the benchmarking for GM, uh, uh, percent uh, reactive maintenance for North America was about 54%. That was the average for North America. Then it worked its way down to about 35%, 34%. And then, and then around uh, uh, 2012, uh, and, and so it was got down to, or excuse me, uh, uh, 2017, 2015, it got to about 31%, and it's pretty much stayed there. Uh, you know, I, I looked at it again about a year and a half ago, and it was still 31%. So I'm in the process of doing a much larger, larger study to reconfirm that. But exactly what they told me 10 years ago, I'm seeing with data. If we don't get better at problem solving and engaging the people on the people side of the business, individual plants are getting better because they get it. But on average, North America has stalled. Uh, they're at 31% reactive maintenance for the last five years. And when I look at, uh, you know, you know uh, what do the best plants do and, and, and what can and uh, should you do? Uh, now most of the stuff's pretty straightforward. There isn't anything magical, but you know, you, first of all, you need to acknowledge the need for change. Because again, most, most places think they're better than they are. You got to recognize it's a journey. I see a lot of journeys starting and you get some good results and then management wants to push real fast to accelerate it. And they destroy the journey. It's a journey. You, you get there not by cutting maintenance costs. You get there by implementing the right processes in reliability and maintainability and developing that maturity. Maintenance costs will right size as you improve those processes. But while you're improving those process and processes, the big savings will come from decreased uh, uh, downtime, uh, more throughput, more product out the back door. That's where you're gonna get your big savings by a factor of you know, five, 10, 20 of anything you're ever gonna see, gonna see in maintenance. Uh, you can reduce some cost in maintenance. You can free up resources by a good PM optimization program. You can do a good parts rationalization. You can do a lot with your stores. I've never been in a place that we can't remove from 10 to 30% of the stores because they're obsolete, don't need to be there, et cetera. So again, there is money to be attained from maintenance also, but the big savings are gonna come from operational improvements by doing the right maintenance and reliability processes. You obviously need to do a gap analysis, do some kind of assessment. It doesn't need to be a huge assessment, but you need to know where you're at and what's possible. 
and you need to get good at monetizing those opportunities and, and so you understand how big they are and i think most people are doing some of that and you need to understand how it's all related because as you go forward and do certain things better all of a sudden a lot of things become a lot easier and all of a sudden a lot of the kpis start to accelerate or they get better at a faster rate because a lot of the things are starting to work better together like putting a puzzle together right it's slow at the beginning but as more things get in place it starts to get easier and faster and better this kind of implementation is no different again you need leading lagging kpis but more importantly or as importantly is you need to reward the behaviors that support those KPIs that you're looking for and develop problem solvers. You got to learn how to re, how to coach and reward behaviors to develop those problem solvers. And as I went to hundreds and hundreds of plant to, to look at the best of the best, like through the Jim Collins book and so on, the main difference that I saw were very subtle from the good plants to the, to the great plants or the best of the best. And again, there's no corporation that does everything well. I've, I've not found it yet individual plants do do a pretty good job um, and, and i haven't found a plant that's top quartile in every metric i'm not sure it exists because there's always compromises in the real world on limited resources but the three things that i see that people need to do number one small team continues improvement you got to get good at it you got to get good at finding and fixing and if you're not spending 20 25 percent of your resources doing the finding and that's not the work orders fixing another 25 30 percent fixing that's half your resources finding fixing. That's what top quartile North America is doing to get 9% reactive maintenance. They have a North America average for finding stuff with, with technologies, routes, and so on, is 23% of their resources by hours is finding, another 30% doing the work orders fixing. So they're doing that finding and fixing, they get it. Uh, the other thing the best of the best had in common, they have a common practical problem solving form or process that they've rolled out. So everybody from the person that sweeps the floor to the plant manager speaks the same language and they're all focused on, on doing the same uh, continuous improvement practical problem solving process. You can use an A3 type form, you know, practical problem solving form, but it doesn't have to be that. You just need, a, what you're really doing is trying to get everybody on the same mindset and thinking the same way about continuous improvement problem solving. And the third thing you have to do is the check and the plan to check act. And that means go out to the plant floor every day and not and not say you're not following standardized work uh, like i uh, kind of tie this into a lean sensing gamma walk you know, you know kind of the plant floor walks by the best way you never give the answer a lean sensing never gives the answer you learn how to ask the questions so your plant floor knows how to get to the answer because it might take you three four times longer because you might have to go out there a few more times to get to the same conclusion but you want to walk away having more problem solvers on a plant floor, not just they're doing it now because I told them. That's the difference between standardized work and, and, and coaching. So, so you need to learn how to do that. So those plants that were the best of the best, and, and it sounds so simple to do, but I call it so difficult to implement, or there'd be a lot more people doing it. So when you look at all that, and you know, there's there's surveys out there that that happen in some every year, some every other year, uh, whether it's planned services and different magazines that still say 50 or 60 percent of the people are not happy with their predictive technology program. Well, why is that? The technologies are getting better, and better. Technologies are great. It's the implementation, the engagement, the people side of the business that's failing. So whether you look at the reliability, maintainability, TPM, implementing technologies, and it's going to be the same thing when you're looking at machine learning and 
putting all these other digital programs in place, it's also a socio-technical process. That just means you got to work on the organizational health, the engagement. It's half a people issue. It's half a that technology and asset issue. And we don't need to talk through all the individual items, but whether it's reliability, maintainability, lean, uh, whether it's PM optimization, whether it's 5S, whether it's TPM, you got to have that, that culture and discipline and you got to have that engaged workforce to make a difference or, or it's just going to be tough to get there you, you need good processes in place it's not just about culture you need good processes in place but a good culture will help you get there faster if you're fortunate enough to get there it will help you sustain uh, this slide here on the left hand side you have organizational culture on the bottom you have plant reliability maturity so if, if we, you know, we, we roll out reliability and maintainability in, in 14 different modules over you know, three different layers, and we just call that, uh, as you implement all those pieces properly, uh, you know, we, say, we say that's the maturity of your reliability process, and, and, and we assess that for some plants. And these are eight plants that do pretty much the same thing, that actually went through, a, an, an in, not a three-day, but actually an intense assessment with hundreds of questions and and interviews and, you know, and et cetera. So it was more than you know, just a survey. And as you can see, uh, culture was pulled out separately as part of the assessment. The other 13 elements, uh, were, the average of those were plotted. As you can see, there's a pretty good correlation on, mat on maturity of the reliability process with culture. Now, uh, how much has culture influenced the process? How much does working as a team in the process improve culture? I don't know, and I, I really don't care as long as they support each other. And, and uh, now, you know, I have other people or, uh, excuse me, plants that I work with that are on a different improvement trend. You know, they're on that red line. They start a little bit lower. Their journey is going to take a little bit longer, but they'll get there too. You know, and you can, you can do this with groups of plants like this, or you can do it with a single plant over time to see if, if you're getting better or not between culture and processes and so on. And the advantage of culture is, is, you may start where that X is on the bottom left, but if you have a much better culture, you'll cross, you, you'll cross that top line that has the green shading around it. You'll cross that top line a lot earlier if you have a good culture and you'll be more likely to sustain it. Because I also see people get there or plants get there and they can hold, the, hold it there for three, four years and stuff happens and they start to fall apart. So it's, it's tough to even stay there once you get there. But again, uh, you need culture, not just the performance focus. Uh, this is the model that, that we use. We kind of work on creating the cultures. You can see it's not just culture. It's also the goals and metrics, your roadmap, what's your reliability network between sharing improvements, what's your reliability network within the plant? Does the entire plant understand why that's important and what you're implementing? Uh, how is your data, data integrity? Are you, you know, is your, how good is your data? Are you willing to make the tough decisions based on data collector you're collecting from the plant? I'd say 90% of the people aren't from what I'm seeing right now. And as, as we get into some of the uh, future stuff with all the digital stuff, you don't clean that up. That, how is that all the digital stuff going to help you? You know, and then you get into standardized work and all the processes from work management, planning and scheduling, the computerized maintenance management process. And that's when you're getting into preventive maintenance your condition-based uh, maintenance, your predictive technologies, your materials management, lubrication, and then an optimize and sustain. Hopefully at some point, purchasing will, will be involved with life cycle uh, attainment of assets and have some responsibility over that. 
and, and be able to spend just, it's not just purchasing management has to allow them to do it, to be able to spend a little bit more money to design it right, to save the big money over time. And root cause analysis is a placeholder for us for all the root cause analysis tools, because we actually teach 12 different uh, root cause analysis tools. And, and you know that would include like FMEAs, lots of different things. And equipment process design uh, gets into your design for maintainability and how you're designing equipment, buying it off and so on. And, and, and that really is, is there, all those things that are there to support, not just reliability center maintenance, but it's overall lean programs, total productive maintenance. And, and, and then how do you do the plan you check act and coach and mentor the floor to sustain that, to, to be able to continually do a continuous improvement. When I look at um, what's coming up, uh, this is a similar version of what I started with from the John Mowbray book, but kind of where does it go from here and, and what's happening? You know, as, you know, as you can see, uh, it took 30 years to get to that first zone of uncertainty to the next zone of uncertainty. By that, I mean, people weren't, show, weren't sure how fast to move forward to some of the new stuff. You know, what do I do? How fast do I change? Uh, should I be using machine learning now or is it too early? You know, do I have data that I can trust to do machine learning? But as we get closer to today, I'd say about the stuff that was there in 2010 is about what we're doing you know, in most of the stuff now and implementing from precision, you know, more precision maintenance, more big data, real time. People are doing more systems thinking, you know, getting more into wireless mobility. Uh, analytics is getting more comprehensive. Uh, they're you know, getting more into prescriptive, prescriptive maintenance. That's where machine learning is now uh, uh, doing algorithms and looking at data. And, and as you're doing more machine learning, machine learning is now generating work orders based on what you're doing. So you may look at something every month but after enough data, your machine learning might say, based on what, what we know now, uh, you only need to look at it every four months rather than every month. And so the machine learning is doing the prescriptive maintenance. You know, edge computing we talked about. Augmented reality, I, I'd say you know, digital twins. Uh, some people are paying big bucks to move forward with this, with this but I, I'd say it's still at its infancy. And, and you know, in a lot still uh, TBD, I think it's good. A lot of good, good applications. But uh, you, know, you know, still needs to uh, smooth things out as far as implementation and day-to-day -day use for the majority of the facilities. But but I think that, you know it's coming. But you got to clean up your data. Uh, machine learning, a part of that. Artificial intelligence will be on top of that or or with that. Then uh, you know the, there there needs to be a new look at your total asset management system and how do we transform and integrate to this new, you know, more IT involvement or maintenance people that are doing more IT type stuff with data analytics now, and how does that change how you maintain and what you maintain and who makes what decisions. And you know, supply chain has already changed and shown a lot of weaknesses over the last year and a half uh, because of the COVID issues, but supply chain will change also as we do manufacturing differently and, and as we do more additive manufacturing. And as they keep putting up there, that's a wish and a hope that purchasing you know, gets more tied into life cycle costing and R&M. But all of this is going to mean we, we need new business models. And so I, I expect and hope to see more things around new business models for, for reliability and maintenance. And we'll be looking at that also. And then down the road, uh, you know, at some point, there'll be you know, neural network uh, AI, which is more like how the brain thinks. That's uh, still a ways off on that, other than you know, various research and specific applications. 
And once they get a hold of quantum computing, that won't just be a game changer, it'll be a world changer. Now you can go a thousand million times faster, a thousand or a million times faster in some things, but to make the physics for quantum computing work, you need to have temperatures you know, close to absolute zero, like outer space. And so there's a lot of, and, and it's, some are getting success at lower temperatures, but there's a lot of physics around that. But once they figure all that stuff out, then that will be a world changer as far as data. But even you know, many years ago, people are publishing that there's more data been published in the last two years than the history of mankind, and that's accelerating. And so here we are, you know, need, still need for a better culture, need for better data, because people still are making the tough decisions based on data. They're kind of getting using it to look in the right direction, but not make the tough decisions. So I, I see us right now in 2020, from 2020 to maybe the next three, four years at least, still in kind of a zone of uncertainty. How fast do I jump on board? You know, how fast can I make these changes? Uh, what should I do next, you know, and so on. Because when I, when the studies that I see, it takes 15 tries to get the technologies to work, applications. Well, most people don't have the money or stomach to try 15 times. Some people are throwing the money at it that have it, and they'll get it to work. But at some point, it's going to be plug and play. It'll work a lot better, a lot easier, a lot faster. But you got to have data that you can trust. So you can work on that now. And what you also look at, when you look at the time spans of all these dramatic changes, you know, 30 years you know, way at the beginning, another 30 years for the next step, 10 years for all the new stuff from precision maintenance to machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now five years, we're gonna see even more drastic changes in the next five years. So this change is even accelerating more. So that's why I say, you know, we, we need better different business models to be able to drive what's, what's coming up. Um, uh, there's a survey I was involved with that was actually global. Uh, I, I uh, helped put together da data and uh, companies that we work with at the university and other companies uh, contributed information. And this was the results and it kind of shows that the digital technology adoption, you know, you know still at its infancy. Uh, so it's just a scale from no adoption at zero to four being full adoption. And as you can see, you know, 3D printing is down there, not even at a one as most of these are only around run, the highest one is uh, remote control, mo excuse me, monitoring. And, uh, you know, machine learning, uh, you know, stuff there is not a one. So most of these still in the emphasis in, in, in North America based on, on data that I've looked at. So we'll publish some more of that as, as, as we go forward. So you know, what, what does all that mean and, and, and where do we go? You know, we know it's going to be disruptive. You got to decide, or you're going to play. You're going to get involved. You're going to wait and see what happens. It's going to change with or without us. So I always say, uh, take action. You know, make things happen. You, you know, change your perspective. Don't don't wait for things to go back to kind of how they were. I don't. You know, some things will go back to how they were. Many things will not. If we wait for the change, it's too late. Uh, everything's changing at an accelerating pace. But I got to say, remember the practical. Uh, you know, we're getting so much data. But the practical tools to allow us to be able to use that data really haven't kept pace, at least at a practical level, affordable level. And, and so remember the practical. And, and so, you know, we try to look at those kind of things. Uh, figure out how to connect the retirees and the millennials before it's too late. You lose a lot of that knowledge. You know, align the goals, get them working together. And, and I, I see some of that happening, but, but not enough. Uh, interconnectivity, you know, still a big issue. Can everything talk to everything? You know, get on board. Get, but number one is get your data ready so you can trust it, especially data where there's human input. And 
the change is happening whether we want to or not or whether we like it or not. So protect your base, stimulate innovation, and decide how you want to play and what's happening in the future, you know, and, and, and good luck with it, you know. But but uh, I, I think it can be good and it will be good, but you got to take a proactive role on everything that's going on. So uh, uh, with that, I think that's pretty much the end of the presentation. I uh, thank you for your time. I'll open up for any questions and turn it back to you, Eric. Thanks so much, Klaus. That was great. We do have several questions that have come in. And as a reminder, if you still have questions you haven't added yet, you can plug them into the uh, Q&A chat box there and uh, we'll answer them as time allows. Uh, the first question someone asks is, can we have a copy of the materials presented? And the answer is yes. We are recording today's webinar and we'll send it out to all of you. It will also be available online at excelix.com. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll make available a PDF file of the slides and, and obviously the recording will be available. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next question for you, Klaus, is uh, in your benchmarking studies, what percentage of companies are using their CMMS data for maintenance optimization? Are these companies with low reactive maintenance? Uh, there, there's a, uh, obviously the ones that are doing a little more digitally, making decisions based on data do better. But it's still a lot less than I'm happy with. You know, probably maybe you know 20% are, but you know only 25% are obviously only in the top quartile. Or it wouldn't be a quartile, right? Um, I had a different study that might help answer that question a little while ago. I looked at a lot of the different software packages. You know, whether it's whether it's uh, Maximo, uh, you know, N4, uh, whether, whether you know, so on. It just doesn't matter. I looked at you know used about seven or eight different ones, and I you know what they were actually using and applying you know, you know what what out of the capabilities of their cmms system are they really using on a day-to-day -day basis it came out that on average north america is not using 30 percent of the capability of any cmms system which is kind of sad and when i talk when i when i say that in plants when i when i talk and do assessments they say you're even high we think it's closer to 20 percent from what they see so it says, you know, you know, some people obviously are doing more, but maybe they didn't, you know, they don't have access to the change master, they didn't pay for it, now changes are expensive. Maybe they're not doing the bill of materials, it just goes on and on. Or that software they bought doesn't integrate to everything that they want, use something else, or they do something on an Excel spreadsheet, even though they have the software. I still see way too much of that. And, and so you've got all these great software systems but they're, in, they're they're bought, but they're not fully integrated. And, you know, Smith's the best answer to the question. Awesome. Uh, the next one is, what can we do to get from reactive to proactive, and how do we go about that cultural change? Well, first thing, first thing is get started, and and uh, and uh, um, I mean, I kind of say, uh, you know, there's four things you got to do, and, and uh, uh, McKinsey's published some stuff. Uh, you know, I've written some things. I kind of try to simplify it. Say you got to be willing to change. You got to want to change. You got to know what to change, and then you got to work the change. You know, then you got to keep asking why am I changing and a new continuous improvement. It's kind of a simplified version. But if you get into the details on some of the studies that that have been done, there's four four levers that that provide the influence model that McKinsey has published. Uh, one is you need a compelling story, like the kind of the un, you need understanding and conviction. And, and so if a person is saying, do I want to change? Do I want to do this proactive? They're going to they're gonna typically look at four things. One is, do I understand what's being asked of me and does it make sense? That's that understanding and conviction. And then they're going to look around and say, what else is happening? 
you know, are, are there are there support mechanisms? Are there reinforcement me mechanisms? And from an individual standpoint, is do do I see our structures, processes, and systems supporting the changes that I'm being asked to make? You know, you know. So is is this going to be real? And then the third thing is, do I have the skills and opportunities to behave in the new way? Meaning that if you're saying, well, you got to do precision maintenance, but you never sent me to precision maintenance training, you know, do I really have the skills required for the change? So you got to work on that confidence and skill building so that the employees do have the skills and opportunities to behave in a new way. And then the third one is, is, the, is what you'd expect is the role modeling. You know, do I see my leaders, colleagues, and staffs behave differently? You know, are, are they coaching and rewarding the new behavior or are they patting everybody on the back that's doing reactive maintenance and saying, great job, you got us up running again? doesn't mean they did a bad job. But the question ought to be is, what are you doing to make sure that never happens again? Are you doing the root cause? Because the role of maintenance and reliability isn't to do it faster, better, more often. It's to, what do I have to do so I never have to do it again? That's the real role of maintenance with reliability. What do I have to do? How can I design it out so that it never happens again? And I don't have that repeat failure. So that's it. So the next question builds up that one a little bit, Klaus. Uh, are companies that are implementing CMMS solutions codifying best practices into their systems, or are they just codifying whatever practices best or poor into their systems? I, I think most people are still learning. I mean, I mean, everybody hopefully is following some kind of model. It doesn't have to be ours. But the key thing is, you know, they, they've, they've got to follow a roadmap. And from what what I've seen is, is those that do more in a structured process and follow a discipline process and are digitizing more of it using their CMMS systems, you know, over time they're, they're having better successes. But I think most of them, it's still a learning process. You know, it's still some trial and error. Okay. Uh, the next question says, so can we conclude that human interaction and work culture are still important even for the distant future, especially in the digital era? Absolutely, maybe even more important, because all the data is not going to be digital, but but that human data has to interact with the digital data, and they both got to be good. All right. The next I mean, question I, is. Let me let me give an example. Sorry. Sure. Uh, no, go ahead. Give an example. Um, I worked with companies that, you know, were saying, "How can we leapfrog the competition? What can we do?" And I spent time with. You know, global client managers, you know, offsite on their annual meetings, looking at all this stuff and seeing how they can go forward. And when I look at what they have, they have people that know reliability growth. They have experts in reliable analysis that, heck, I wish I had. You know, that that, that I mean, just phenomenal people. And I says, why aren't you doing this? I mean, you got the talent. So we don't trust our data. We don't trust our data to make the tough decisions. You know, so that's why I would say. You, you got to trust your. You got to get to where you trust your data, and just going digital. You can't collect everything digitally to make decisions on your operations. It's going to get better, but you can't collect everything. And again, that human data has to interact with the digital data, and then do you trust it to make those tough decisions? Great. Uh, and the next question is: Are there a list of processes that should be standardized at the beginning? I saw you said work process standardization. Are there any other fundamental processes that companies should have in place? 
Well, it, it really depends on you know what you're trying to do. I mean, if, if RCM has you know, certain things you can put in place, if you're doing lean manufacturing, if you're doing it under lean manufacturing, uh, we implemented lean manufacturing when I was in corporate world, you know, 30 some modules. But what I would say is in, in all of those, you, you, know, you gotta do some kind of pilot. Just like in lean, one of the first five modules is always 5S. And some people fight 5S and the trades might say, oh, that's childish. Why do I need to do it? You know, you know, you know, and you say, oh, Joe, he's a, he's our best trades. He does everything we ask, but he thinks it's childish. But you see, all of a sudden you see all these holes in 5S. But 5S isn't just about doing some continuous improvement and workshops and cleaning up some of the workplace and, and getting some standardized work there. What 5S really is, it's a test of your culture and discipline. If you can't develop the culture and discipline, to do 5S, you will fail in lean manufacturing. And I and I say what I see is 70% of lean manufacturing fails around the world. And when I say it fails, it doesn't mean that you don't get some benefits, but you get less of the half of the benefits that are attainable because you don't, you don't have the discipline and the culture to follow things even in 5S. And I, and I see that in plants and then I ask them, how are you doing on lean? Oh, we're rolling it all out. It should go pretty good. Well, how can it go good if you don't even have the discipline to do uh, uh, 5S, which isn't easy, but it's one of the easier modules. If you can't get the culture and discipline going there, how do, how do you do the rest of it and, and trust the system and the data? So that's it. Here's a good one for you, Klaus. Uh, in my organization, the cultural change is driven by entry level and production employees, but often held back by middle management. What approach would you recommend to be able to instill change in those with the fiscal and structural authority to allow change? Well, it, it would be it would be nice if uh, you know if the uh, people on the floor could get someone to come talk and you know and be, get beat up and and so on because sometimes it is it is management you know it doesn't want to change. Uh, I won't mention names of companies, but one company I'm, I'm working with, um, you know, they just had a big change in management and it's a much younger uh, management group now in the 40s, and they understand the cultural engagement part, so they're rolling out all the processes, learning how to coach the floor and you know you know. And, and they're seeing the successes, you know, doing the 5S workplace organization uh, and so on. Uh, I've been other places, whether it's Europe and, and over here, where a, a, a vice president actually took over a plant because they were going to go under if they don't operate better. And and, and these, this place had over 200 facilities, so it wasn't they weren't going under. Just this one plant making that those particular products was having a problem. And, and I got there about near the end of their implementation of what this vice president took the active role of plant manager was to change his facility. And he shared with me his 30 PowerPoint presentation uh, that he gave to those, they gave, first he gave it to the people on the floor and they were in shock at how bad they were doing compared to competition and what they could be doing. And they said, no one ever told us that. They said, we were doing a great job, we're, you, know, you know, et cetera. It was all buddy, buddy and you know, culture was good. And, and, and then he gave that same presentation to the management and the management told them, uh, sir, you don't really get it. We, we're doing, we think we're doing a pretty good job. Well, obviously it was the management that was a problem. This is not gonna help the answer directly, but a third of the people at that plant took early retirement, a third went elsewhere and a third actually changed and stayed there and worked. And now that plant is producing in one shift what they used to produce in two. And that took two years. So you know the, the so the issue that for the question is you know, you know how do you how do you get it to the management you know you know you know whether it's a guest speaker whether you know 
somebody you know is close enough to management even at the middle management or at the floor that they can talk because I, I get another example i've been the places um where i've been asked to say you know, can you kind of give us an overview of where we need to go and what we're doing i wasn't involved in implementation and as i'm about halfway through my presentation the vice president says well you've got really good data it, it, you know it's kind of what we do and I, and I told him i said sir this is your data this is my third time here first time you had a bunch of stuff going on and you cut a bunch of resources and somebody saved a lot of money and looked good, went on to someplace else and you destroyed your process. Second group got me in and, and uh, they did a good job, rebuilt their process, then some mergers didn't work and you gave those guys early retirement. You're the third person asking me in, what should we do? So the question is, what are you gonna do different? You know, so, so you know, management needs to understand too. I've seen other great success stories We've had keynote speakers at our conference where, where uh, people just below vice president or you know, or vice presidents that later became senior vice presidents are giving the reliability and maintainability talk, most of which they made input to themselves, and they give the talk off script. They understand it, they can talk it, and they feel the questions. That's a different level of involvement of what it can do for a corporation because they understand and, and they got there. So well, long answer to a short question. So. Awesome, that was a great answer. Well, uh, that's all the time that we have for today, actually. Um, so I do want to say thank you again to you, Klaus. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to share your insight and expertise. Um, if anyone else has additional questions or want to connect directly with Klaus, his contact information is here on the screen. Um, I'll also just add, this is our last best practice webinar of 2021. So thanks to everyone who joined us this year. We're currently finalizing our lineup of best practice webinars for 2022. We'll be posting those to our regular place www.excelix.com and uh, we'll also be sending out some promotions about them as they come up so thank you everyone for your time and have a wonderful rest of your day hey thanks everybody all right bye-bye class bye-bye